new series on the book of James. And if you're visiting with us, uh, what we do here at Christ Pres is we take a passage of Scripture each week. We work book by book, discern what the Lord has in store for His people. And this morning, as he had mentioned, we're going to talk about the sin of partiality. I'm uh, recovering from a cold. If I need to break into a halls here in a minute, I will. Just bear with me. Um, The thing that comes to mind perhaps more than any other when you read through this passage is that old saying, cannot judge a book by its cover. And yet if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we all do that. We constantly judge books by their covers, right? Like who has time to read through the first couple of chapters of a book before you decide to take it off the shelf at the library or buy it in a store? And and why would it be that book publishers on a regular basis are spending millions and millions of dollars with artists and illustrators and marketers to make sure that they get the right title and the right cover if they thought none of us were going to judge the book by its cover. We do it all the time. And of course, we know that the deeper understanding of that is that it's not about literature, right? We say this because we're talking about human relationships and the ways in which we're quick to make these snap judgments about people based on external factors alone. We look at their body, their clothing, their car, their home. And, uh, and if you go by the popularity of the Instagram feed, preachers and sneakers, then we are definitely judging people by what they wear on their feet even. James is going to call us out today in no uncertain terms. He says these words. He said, what you're doing is not only unfair, but wrong. Wrong. And he goes so far as to tell us specifically, if you show partiality, you are committing sin. Sounds kind of dramatic, doesn't it? Should cause us to wonder for a second, is is James right? Is that true? And if so, why? So turn with me, if you will, this morning. Second chapter of James, verse 1 to 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to this text this morning, Lord, and <clears throat> perhaps until moments ago, well, we never thought that this 
act that we engage in moment by moment, day by day, as we go about our business at home and in the workplace and in our communities, Lord, where from a single glance, we make a mental note in our own minds about the entire story of the person that we're looking at, Lord. And we do show partiality. Father, would you convict us today? Will you open our eyes to the truth of the depth of how destructive this is to your family and to each of us personally, Lord? And I pray specifically that if anything I say today is false, that it would simply fall away and that whatever is true, it would remain. And those things, those good things that you give us today, Lord, they would take root into our hearts, Lord, and they would bear fruit that would go beyond these walls out into the community, Lord, where the mission of God is alive and well, Lord. We pray, most importantly, that Christ would be lifted up in this place today and that we would leave looking more like him than when we first arrived. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, For those that don't know, I've got uh, three boys, Luke, Andrew, and Zachary. And we were on a family trip one time, taking this road trip. And as families do from time to time, they start playing those car games, right? Like you're trying to find... The, the letters in succession on the signs, or you're looking at all the license plates. And at one point, one of them says, let's play two truths and a lie. It's not my favorite game. <clears throat> I said, no, I don't think we're going to play that one. <laughs> and they kept begging. And they kept begging, come on, Dad, let's play, let's play, let's play, until I finally said, okay, fine, I'll go first. I love Luke, I love Andrew, I love Zachary. <laughs> <laughs> And um, we don't play that game on road trips anymore. <laughs> we don't play it anymore. This is a, uh, you know, kind of a, a comical way to, to ease into a pretty serious conversation, right? Like, if that were true, the damage that would be done in our family. Like, that level of favoritism, that level of partiality. And some of you come from families in which that, that probably could be a very real prospect. You know, that there was that level of dysfunction in your home in which there was that level of favoritism, partiality, that people were shown uh, certain amounts of attention, lavish gifts upon. And what James is trying to get us to understand is that that is no different in the family of God. That if that were to happen in any singular nuclear family, just, just how pervasive the trauma would be, he said, it is no different when you walk through the doors of this church, stand on this stage, become a member and begin to worship God as brothers and sisters in Christ, if you begin to engage in that level of favoritism, that kind of partiality, it has deadly results. So we're going to talk about partiality today in sort of three movements as James walks us through this passage, talk about the definition of partiality, the destructiveness of partiality, and the death. Of partiality. I actually thought for a second in my office this week I should call this partiality in 3D, but like I couldn't say it out loud without laughing in my own office, so I decided not to go that direction. But um, let's start with defining it. What, what does James even mean when he uses this word? What exactly are we talking about when we talk about partiality? He said in the beginning here, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, he is just, if you have not been walking with us here for the last few weeks, he's just finished up in this letter talking about, uh, to his followers, about the definition of true religion and the importance of keeping oneself unstained from the world. And then he turns to describe one of the most common ways that each one of us has been stained 
by the world, the way that the world infects us, shapes us in its own, at, at our very heart level, and it is through our values. What is it that we prioritize? What is it that we see as most valuable in the world? And he's warning us and his audience to be wary of the temptation to evaluate others based on the standards of the world rather than the standards of God himself. He used this word, partiality. It is a unique word, especially unique within the New Testament. In fact, one commentator even said this week, he said, it's almost as if the New Testament writers made this word up, right? Because you don't find it in any other literature of the time. It literally means it's an idiom that they would say. It would say, to accept a face. Don't be a person who accepts a face. That's really what the Greek word means here, partiality. It comes from this Old Testament idea where God is shown again and again. He is described as one who does not receive face. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, that God is not partial. uh, partial. We read that this morning from the book of Job. God is not partial. He is not one who receives face. He does not look at irrelevant external appearances. That's the essence of it. He sees through them. Everyone is judged by the same measure. Now, in the New Testament, they take that idea and they want to make it so so clear that this applies to us equally as it does to God that they, they make up this word. It means to receive face and then they, they put it together with this verb receiving to create this word. Don't be a face receiving person is what James literally says in this passage. Don't be a face receiver. Don't, don't be a person who only goes as far as seeing the face of an individual and decide whether they are worthy of your time or not. Don't be a person who's just going to look at external appearances and decide whether that is a person you're going to give your time, your energy, your resources to. Don't just be a face-receiving person. And then James gives us this very, very practical illustration. And it just continues to show just how relevant the Bible is all the time. That, that what he's going to give us is this picture of this, this morning, if we were to have these doors open and there were two different people to walk in, and it's a very clear one. You almost don't have to explain it too much, right? There's a person who comes in, they got fine clothing, they look very wealthy, and you walk up to him and you said, thank you so much for coming to Christ's prayers. Here's the choice seat in the house. And then a poor person walks in. And he says, why don't you go stand over there, Right? He said, that is being a face-receiving person. And while he is using this illustration specifically to talk about partiality, I don't want us to move too quickly onto the idea that this is just about socioeconomics. It's not the only way we show partiality, is it? It's actually probably not the most common way that we show partiality. In fact, when Paul himself is talking about partiality in Romans 2, he's talking specifically about a God who is not impartial in the ways that we should mirror him. He is very much talking about ethnic distinctions. He's talking about the Greeks and the Jews. His primary argument is the same word here. We're not to be partial in this way because in all of these instances, whether we judge people by promoting them or rejecting them, based on any of these factors, we're not treating people the way God treats us. So this is a biblical definition. I'll I'll say it a couple times. You can write it down. Judging or showing favoritism based on external appearances motivated by the hope of personal gain. Judging or showing favoritism based on external appearances 
motivated by hope of personal gain. So we all have a pretty good understanding of what showing favoritism is, giving preference to certain people, certain types of people. And what does that look like in our everyday life? It means that for those people that we are giving preference to, we give them our time. We're more generous towards them. We give them the benefit of the doubt. You're more likely to befriend them, flatter them, show them special treatment. And you do this based on external appearances. All of us do it. Uh, in fact, psychologists actually have this, uh, this term when they're talking about it in terms of economics. They call it beauty premiums. The world we live in gives out beauty premiums. And some of the ways that that works out is that beautiful people consistently make up 10 to 15% more money than people who are considered, this is what they say in the literature, plainer. That's like a technical term for ugly, for ugly people, right? Companies justify it. They justify it because they say, well, these people actually are earning us more money. Right? It's why when you go on a company website or a church website or a conference website, they don't have ugly people on the front of it. Right? They're trying to entice you, just like any other form of advertising, that, that beautiful people do have an impact on us. And a lot of these people go on and do take leadership positions because cute babies grow up to be beautiful people. And so they've been told from a very early age, they've received all of the accolades, they have received all of the attention, they have high confidence, they've been told you're going to be a rocket, uh, a rocket scientist or whatever you're going to do, you're going to go excel in life, and guess what? Then they do. They do. It's always a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's sort of like the idea that like, the rich continue to get rich, right? The poor get poor. Rich people generally more attractive than poor people. We've seen it. And it's so deeply ingrained into our fabric of society, the ways that we interact with each other every single day, it's really become embedded in our subconscious. These are things, we're not making a conscious decision. He doesn't even talk about the fact that, that like the person sees two people walk in and instinctively, they just know right away who's the rich one, who's the poor one, and then just begins to treat them accordingly. And we do it all the time. Most obvious and egregious form of it is uh, perhaps the travesty of the Jim Crow South. The very color of your skin, right? Determined where you could eat, where you could go to the bathroom, what kind of job you could have, where you could live. And the primary factor of our behavior becomes that we are motivated by the hope of personal gain. It's actually very selfish, right? We think we are going to get something out of it. We show favoritism towards people because we think this is a person right here, whether by their, 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 their wealth or their zip code or what possessions they have, that I am going to get something out of it. When you do this, you divide people based on how much money they have, their race, ethnicity, education level, the way they talk, the way they dress. And all of this, James says, all of this is, is completely unfitting for a follower of Jesus Christ because they contradict the very thing that God himself is most interested in. And that's our heart. And see, the ultimate issue of partiality. It points to the fact you're judging people with a different evaluative tool than God does. That's what James is going to keep coming back to. This is not the way that God sees us. And you are setting up your own superficial standards to judge one another. And he tells us, this is far from innocent. It's deadly. Let's talk about the destructiveness of partiality. He says, if you do this, 
If you show partiality, if you give in to the temptation to show favoritism, he says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Made distinctions and become judges with evil thoughts. The idea of of making distinctions and judging with evil thoughts, they go together here, they combine in the original language and give us this sense of being judged worthy on the basis of testing. That these two things, when you start making distinctions and then you begin to judge people with these evil thoughts, what you're doing is you're dividing everyone up and judging their worthiness based on your test. It's a picture of us, each one of us, as we go about our business each day. If we were to imagine we had that, that big, uh, it's not a pulpit, but whatever the judge sits in with the gavel, Right? And you line up everybody, everybody who's here today, everybody come on up front. Each one of us gets to take a turn and we get to stand up here with our gavel and we line up every single person in this community and they don't say a word and we know nothing about them and we just go down the line based on how they look, how they talk, how they act, how much money we perceive them to have, how much education we perceive them to have and you are saying worthy, unworthy, worthy, just going down the line. He said, that's exactly what you're doing when you show partiality and favoritism, is that you are judging with evil intention because it strikes at the heart of the very thing that God wants to convey to each one of us, right? His love, our absolute worthiness. And he says, and you are sitting in that seat instead. And by no other factor, you're looking at people and judging them worthy. And he says, it's not just unfair. It's not just mean. It's not improper. He calls it evil. Because we're undermining the worthiness that God himself has bestowed on us. As Christians, we, maybe you've heard this word before, we talk about the omago Dei, the image of God. Being made in the very image of God, each one of us. That in creating us, we bear the imprint of our creator. And because of this, every single person has inherent value that cannot be taken away. And it's evil because when we deny that to others, which is a sense what we're doing every time we show favoritism, when we devalue them, ultimately what happens is we begin to treat people however we want. We we take away that humanity. We take away that image of God when we can just simply in our minds compartmentalize each person into this camp, that camp, this camp. Then we can treat them however we want to. They're not humans anymore. They're merely ideas. They're They're merely them instead of us. Uh, Peyton uh, Gendron, maybe you don't know that name, a couple weeks ago he was sentenced at trial. Uh, He was the shooter that uh, drove a couple hours from his house in Buffalo last year and opened fire at a supermarket in New York. And what sort of shocked everyone was just how honest he was. He stepped to the microphone when it was time for him to receive his sentencing. And he said this, I did a terrible thing that day. I shot and killed people because they were black. Full stop. Full stop. And if you think that's an extreme example, uh, we've used this here from time to time in our confession. If they consider again the way the Heidelberg Catechism talks about God's commandment, do not murder. The question asks, does this commandment speak only of killing? And the answer is by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, 
desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. The roots of murder itself, being able to divide people among one another, to be able to have our own superficial standard for who is in, who is out, who is worthy, who is unworthy, who has the image of God stamped on them, and who does not, and it does not matter if I can just dismiss them in my mind all the way to the extreme of dismissing them physically through murder. And we do it all the time. We have political, theological, cultural, racial, economic, education, career, material possessions, parenting philosophy, schooling choices, liberal, conservative, progressive. We've got all sorts of ways we love to divide each other up right now. All sorts of ways, making distinction, distinctions. I, I spoke to the Rotary Club this uh, last week, and I was talking about mental health issues and some of the, the, the stems and causes for that. And I, and I talked to them about... Um, uh, some of you have heard me reference Mark Sayers before, um, pastor in Australia. And recently he was talking about living in an age of scissor issues. I wish I could say it like him with his accent, but it would sound really stupid. It sounds great when he says it. sounds much smarter than what I'm saying. Scissor issues. And he says what, what kind of day that we're living in right now, as he says there, are no more, there is no more any kind of nuance in any of the things that are going on culturally. Everything that happens becomes a scissor issue. And by that he means every single issue, no matter how big, no matter how small, somehow your hot take on it, your opinion on it, automatically divides you into this camp or that camp. And he said, it doesn't even matter how foolish it is. He said, the obvious, the big ones, right? We, we could, your take on immigration or gun control or, or human sexuality, like we've expected that. He says, but now we're at a place where like, you're supposed to have a hot take on, on Prince Harry's new book or the halftime show, right? All of these, or Taylor Swift's new album, like whatever it is, somehow your opinion on every single thing that happens now Give somebody the opportunity to say, oh, you're one of those people then. You're over here. You're over there, right? And it just divides people. And he says, this is a scissor issue. And we're all feeling the weight of it. It's almost like we just want to just all continue to just like sleep under a rock and just like back away from all of this because every single time we open our mouth and give an opinion about anything, we know that somebody is constructing in their mind some sort of false idea about who I am and determining whether I am in or I am out whether I'm worthy or unworthy. It's, uh, we've reduced fellow human beings to these categories. And really what's happening, and James would echo this, he's saying, and it's categories that the culture is getting to set the terms for, not the body of Christ. And it takes people out of their context. I think that's probably one of the most destructive things about it. It removes people from a larger story of their life. Reminded me this last week of my favorite movie of all time, Goodwill Hunting. And I know there's more F words in that than any movie in history. It's still my favorite. But there's a great scene in that. If you have not seen it, um, it's not a family film. Don't go home and watch it today with your kids. But great scene, Goodwill, uh, Goodwill Hunting. So Will Hunting goes in to see Robin Williams. And he doesn't, he's sort of been playing uh, games with all of his counselors. He doesn't want to be in therapy. He's an abused kid. He's an orphan, but he's got incredible intellect, and this math teacher's trying to save him. Robin Williams uh, is confronted with him in his office, and immediately Will tries to, like, turn the issue around. And so he sees a painting on the back wall, and it's a painting that Robin Williams had done, and he just begins to go after him, asking all these questions about this part of his life, this part of his life, accusing him until he starts talking about his wife. And Will doesn't know 
that Robin Williams' wife has died. So they, they end the counseling session, and then the next scene is Robin Williams taking him out to a park bench. And he says this very famous line to him. He says, Will, no one could possibly understand the depths of you, but you presume to know everything about me because you saw a painting of mine and you ripped my life apart. He says, you're an orphan, right? You think I know the first thing about how hard your life has been, how you feel, who you are, because I read Oliver Twist? Does that encapsulate you? None of us want to be treated like that. Like somehow we are easily defined, that we are ripped out of the context of our larger stories, what we have suffered, what we have endured, the sins we have committed, the sins that have been committed against us, that we are whole people within a whole story of God's redemptive plan. And it's why partiality is so destructive. It's a breaking of the most important command God has given us. To love him and to love others as we love ourselves. And understanding that gravity is the way forward. So final point here, destroying partiality. I think we can make the case, yeah, this is, you're right, James. We feel the weight of this. It's terrible. We've been on the receiving end. We've been on the giving end of it. It's terrible. What's our way forward? He said, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. What's the royal law? It's referred to as the law of liberty earlier in his letter. Thankfully, we don't have to speculate. He tells us, what makes it the royal law? Why does he call it the royal law? In essence, what what James is telling us here, it's not a common way to talk about this, but he says, look, we all have laws and rules that we live by, right? You might have some special laws and rules that you live by in your own family, in your own house. Maybe you work for an employer, and there's certain laws and regulations. He's like, and then we got these federal laws. Like, it doesn't matter what you do in your house. It doesn't matter what you do at your workplace. Like, these are for everybody. And then he says, and then we got these royal laws, and those come from the king, and they are for everybody. These come all the way down from the top. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter what your situation is. This is for all people, for all time. This is the royal law. And James says, this is not my law. It's the law that comes straight from Christ himself. As Hobie had reminded us earlier that when Christ was asked, what's the most important one? He says this, and so playing favorites, James tells us, is breaking one of the most central commandments of God. He said, if you really fulfill the royal law, you're doing well, full stop. How is that, right? Because the reality is, is that if we follow that law, if you love your neighbors yourself, you don't steal from them. You don't covet. You don't cheat on your spouse with them. You don't murder them physically or in your heart. You don't lie about them. And you truly love them, James says, when you stop sitting on your high seat of judgment determining who is worthy and who is not. How do we get there? How do we get there? Number one, we recognize and confess the ways the world has shaped our hearts. We are people in this context, in this world, and we've got to be discerning. We've got to be able to to sit under the scriptures and recognize all the ways in which it completely contradicts the values of this world. I I, I took a deep dive this week into this old British television show. You probably didn't watch it. It's okay. It's on YouTube if you want to find it. It's got a really clever name called Rich Kids Go Homeless. (laughs) And what they do is exactly that. They take these really, really rich kids from all over London and they have them spend three days out on the streets. 
And in the very first episode, there's an intro to the kid who's about to go on the street, and he said, I'm a premier customer of the National Bank of Dad. And 99% of the requests are approved. I spend my money on cars. It makes me feel special. People look at you and have a predetermined idea of who you are. But you have a different level of respect. Anyone who tells you that money can't buy you happiness doesn't know what they're talking about. Essentially, I believe it's because they don't know where to shop. So collectively, yes, we might all want to punch that kid in the face. But part of it is because we know he's not wrong. We know he's not wrong. And James is recognizing the same exact thing. We do this all the time, right? We look at people's cars. We look at people's homes. We, we, we look at their clothing, their vacations, their boats. We look at their second homes, right? We do all of that. And we do covet. And we do envy. We do give them respect. We do treat them differently. Ran across a, a survey this week. 72% of Generation Z, many of you have Generation Z, some of you are Generation Z, 72% believe that they will be wealthy when they grow up. It is the most financially optimistic generation to ever walk planet Earth. And part of it is because they are being bombarded every single day with kids their age and younger who are literally becoming millionaires by becoming YouTube stars. Like where everybody can just walk around the room, they can just like show you a toy. And all of a sudden, they're becoming millionaires. They have no reason to believe that's the life that I want, and it's open to every single one of us. James reminds us of something else. He says, but take a closer look at this. He says, the rich, they oppress you. They drag you into court. They blaspheme the name of Christ. James himself is not being partial. He's not saying rich people are condemned because they are rich. Wealth in and of itself is not sinful. Um, But he's warning us not to envy them. Do not envy them. And to the rich and poor alike, he's saying, do not put your hope in your money. He is saying, look at the lives of the rich around you. Really look. Not just on the externals, not just the things that they have. And it seems like the life that they they have that you want. He says, there is a reason why the Bible says it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Wealth provides you with security. And it provides you with comfort. The Christian life is a life that is lived by faith and it's marked by suffering. We long for wealth so that we never have to live by faith. And we long for wealth because we believe it will shield us from suffering. One survey Uh, article I read this week said over the past two decades Americans in general have become twice as rich as any other time in history and at that same exact time the divorce rate has doubled teen suicide has tripled depression rates have soared American teens from upper middle class families are more likely to have higher rates of depression anxiety and substance abuse than any other socioeconomic group of young people James is telling us the same thing. The problem with our partiality is that we're not looking deep enough. The ultimate problems that humanity suffers from can't ever be fixed by money, he says. We're broken people who live in a broken world. And while money can afford us more distractions from that, it can never offer us the ultimate solution we're looking for.
So the final thing today, what James is offering each one of us is he says, come and embrace your poverty. Embrace your poverty. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? Paul said the same exact thing to his letter in the Corinthians. He said, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring about the things that are. And Christ himself, so bluntly, blessed be the poor in spirit. And a word to be poor financially and spiritually is to be dependent. It's to be dependent. It's to be the homeless mother on the side of the road next to Walmart who will not eat that day unless you press a dollar bill into her hand. It is to be completely aware of your neediness, completely aware of your bankruptcy, your complete and utter inability to save yourself. If you're poor, James says, don't believe the lie that the world is telling you about the rich. Don't believe the lie that these people do not need the same exact gospel that you need. And if you're rich, James says, get in touch with your poverty because you will never know the gospel if you're unwilling to ever take a handout. You cannot buy what Jesus has offered to us. So one little mental exercise this morning. You don't have to physically do it right now, but in your mind, you can think about turning to your left and turning to your right this morning. Those people are invaluable to God. Their lives, every one of them, purchased by the incredibly high price of the life of His only begotten Son. A Son who demonstrated throughout his years of ministry the absolute value of people. It's interesting that James says that when we see a poor person, we might be tempted to say something like, sit down at my feet. And yet on the night of Jesus' arrest, his betrayal, the Last Supper when he gathered with his disciples, what Jesus did instead is he took off his outer robes, put on slave clothing, got down on his hands and knees, and he washed the filthy feet of every single one of his disciples. Poor fishermen, wealthy tax collectors, betrayers, deniers, traitors. He got down on his hands and knees, and he washed their feet. And then some of the most troubling words in the New Testament afterwards he utters, if I then... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, and you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example. You should do just as I have done for you. And in that moment, Christ took his place as the only one who could have ever sat on that throne, sat on that judge's seat, held that gavel in his hand and gone right down the line and decided worthy, unworthy, worthy, unworthy. And instead, he got down on his hands and knees, and to every single one of those disciples, and to me and to you today, he said instead, worthy, 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 worthy. Rich or poor, black or white, sinner and saint, worthy. And then he ends, mercy triumphs over judgment. I've given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Let's pray. Father, we are so 
desperately needy, Lord, for this word today. Not only to convict us of our sin of partiality, but to be reminded of the fact, Lord, that when you could have been partial, you chose us. That you have given us your spirit. And that we have been made in your image. Father, I pray that specifically it would start right here at CPC. That this would be a place in which no matter how you look, no matter the, the, the details of your story, what you possess, what you fail to possess, Lord God, that this would be a place in which the gospel was lived out in practical ways. That never would someone have to walk through this door and wonder if in the mind and eyes of others, if they were found worthy. Lord, let it begin here with us. In Jesus' name, amen.